I mean, there's going to be people negative about it, but, you know, we can't worry about that. I mean, we, we all have to, and, and I'm not saying they're wrong. What I'm saying is I, this is what I believe is the best way to help our community, and so I'm going to go at it full bore. If it's wrong, I mean, as I've told you, that my job is to say I was wrong. I was dead wrong, and this is why I was wrong, so let's fix it. But I just find it hard to believe that if you can have citizens in your community believe they can change the way their next generation's life will live because they have an actual chance to have a good job, I, I can't imagine that going in a bad direction. Hey, everybody. Before we get started, I want to tell you about the sponsor for this week's episode. AB Jets is a great story and great company. I'm not exactly flying around on private jets during this stage of my life, but if I were, I'd be calling AB Jets. They're one of the safest private air companies in the world. AB Jets has received the prestigious Argus Platinum rating the last eight consecutive years, which goes to less than 5% of operators in the world. AB Jets is one of the largest Lear 60 jet companies in the United States with nonstop access to most destinations around the U.S. Efficient, clean, and easy to work with, AB Jets is an experience that gets you where you need to go on time and with no hassle. Go to abjets.com for more information and book your trip today or call them at 888-520-JETS. That's J-E-T-S. This podcast is also brought to you by My Story. If you stop and think about it, are there stories and experiences of someone you love that have been forgotten? If you could, would you go back into time and capture a series of conversations, family memories, and life experiences of someone you love that would be around to keep and share for generations to come? Here, I want you to hear one of our favorite clips from a World War II veteran. How come your brother didn't go to Auschwitz? He was lucky he wasn't, he was not caught. They just didn't get him? No. Where no. Did, like, where did he hide? Or what? They didn't. They lived normal life as possible. <laughs> they just didn't come to their house? Yeah. And they right. went to your sister's house? Right. What did right. it feel like that night when you found out? What better way to keep and remember the life of someone you love in their own voice for generations to come? Go to mystorytold.org to learn more. That's mystorytold.org to learn more. My guest today is Duncan Williams. I wanted to have Duncan on this podcast because what started as a small regional municipal bond firm in 1969 grew to be one of the largest female-owned bond broker-dealers in the United States. In addition to this work, this family has a strong presence as a holding company in farmland, apartments, and senior living facilities in the southeastern part of the United States. This is a great story that shows what one generation's risk and sacrifice can do for communities, people, and opportunities decades down the line. In this episode, you'll hear choosing not to sell the family business when unexpected events hit your family, building a holding company, how to pick the right people, give them what they need, and get out of their way, how to build a brand, watching some of the best companies in the world, and how they build theirs and learning from them along the way, a passion for jobs, the new world order, 
and making sure people get what they need to flourish in the communities you are a part of, plus much more. Please enjoy this week's episode with Duncan Williams. Duncan, great to see you. Hey, hey, Sam. How are you? Glad to be here. Good. We're all glad to be here. Got a great view. Corner office. (laughs) Something like that, for sure. I've seen that 40% of U.S. family-owned companies make it second generation, 13% make it down to the third, and roughly about three make it to the fourth. And it seems that certain operators are more comfortable taking risks and doing things the way they think they need to be done it in the second, third generation versus others that seem like they just don't want to screw it up. Right. Or maybe that they don't want to rock the boat. Is there any advice you can share about how you've led and built from a second generation standpoint in your way? First, I would totally agree with the statistics of it is that, um, First, the second, the third, the fourth generation, really by the time you get to fourth, it's almost unheard of. Uh, But I think a lot of that also is people, uh, a first generation, so when you go into the second generation, it's what I grew up with, right? I mean, I was around, my dad starting the business. I think that's something you always want to follow. By the time you get to fourth generation, I think the kids or the um, relatives have different interests, and so it's another reason it drives them apart, uh, or drives them, say, apart, but away from the business. I think also when when you start a business and you grow a business, there's things about it that we don't want our kids to have to go through what we went through. So sometimes we may do it to the generations below us and not even know we're doing it. Uh, You know, there's parts of being in the bond business that – it's so different than when my father started it, and even when I got back involved, that I really d- don't know that I want my children to do it, um, but it, it's just such a different world. So I think there's, there, the statistically, there's no question that's correct. Uh, what I would always say is, um, you know, risk is a good thing. Smart risk is a good thing. And if you're afraid to fail, then a company's never going to grow. So... It may be that by the third or fourth generation that the company is doing, you know, enough to provide economic comfort to the family that they don't worry about it. And you get maybe you get somebody that's not family to run it and they just reap the benefits of that. But for a company to continue to grow and continue to get better, there always has to be change. There always has to be risk. And sometimes um, I think the first and second generations will challenge the next generations and how they're doing things. And that's probably another reason that you don't see them continuing to go in the family business. Because they feel strongly about things a certain way and then they break off and do their own. And they should, just as I did my own and I'm different than what my father would do. I can promise you there's probably things he's turned over in his grave recently that I've done. So uh, and I'm sure if my children got involved, I would question what they're doing. It doesn't mean they're wrong. It doesn't mean I was wrong. It's just a different way of doing it. So go down a couple of generations from that, and they're saying, enough of this stuff. I'm out of here or whatever. I, I don't need to put up with this, or I'm not going to put up with it, or I don't want to put up with it. You said the bond business is different, and you said there's certain things that you went through that you wouldn't want your kids to go through. Did I hear that right? Yeah, I think that's right. Could you um, share some sure. examples of what you're saying. Yeah. So, you know, 
I don't want to say it was a wild, wild west uh, when Duncan Williams, Inc. was started, but if it wasn't that, uh, it was referred to that quite <laughs> a few times. Uh, you know, they were carrying, you know, the municipal bond world in Memphis especially was was a huge business in the late 60s, early 70s, as it, and then it kind of moved throughout the country as regulation chased it a little bit. Um, but they were literally carrying, you know, at that point in time, hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars of bare bonds in the trunk of their car, and they would go to an institution and literally sell them. Um, you know, that can't do that anymore. Right. And uh, first off, there are no more bare bonds because, <laughs> you know, they were used for ways from avoiding taxes to money laundering to whatever it may be. You know, all you if you had a bare bond in your hands, that was as good as a dollar bill. And, and so it didn't matter how you got them. If you had them, you could go to any institution and they would change. So that's changed. Just the amount of, of how you do business has changed. There's so much transparency now. The, the client can see so much on their own. They don't have to depend as much on a broker-dealer. At least they don't think they have to depend as much on a broker-dealer. We don't necessarily agree with that. I can read a lot on the internet about, you know, having surgery on my arm, but I'm not going to go have surgery. I'm not going to go do my own surgery on my right. arm, right? I'm going to let a doctor do it. So I think there's been a little bit of People believing they can just go invest and they can do it all and they can, you know, do the business. And it's a lot harder than that. But it is different that way. Uh, the other thing is I, I would never, I mean, God willing, I, I don't pass away at 56 like my dad <laughs> did. I don't want my kids to go through that. Uh, but just the learning cycle of how I came up is, is something that it made me who I am. And there's such positives about it. But it was a hard time, no question. From a parent standpoint, how do you think about that? Or how do you make decisions with knowing the things that you went through that were hard or difficult, but it made you better, made you more experienced, made you maybe more resilient. But then at the same time, with your kids' standpoint, the next generation, how do you think about wanting what's best for them, but then also trying to discern the benefits that came through the hard knocks? Yeah, it's a great question. And I don't think if I think, and you being a, a new father, <laughs> you should be asking this to a lot of different people, but uh, there's no perfect way, right? I mean, there's no perfect parent. There's no perfect plan. If there is, none of our kids would get in trouble, and we wouldn't have gotten in trouble. So I, I think, you know, you, you want to support them, and you want to teach them, and you want them to respect and honor and be honest and do all those things that you're supposed to do. They're also kids, and, and uh you know, I, I'm I'm glad that there was not 24/7 internet when I was growing up, or even after I had grown up for a long time. You know, there's just so much information now, and there's so much different pressure now. So, I think what you got to teach them is that you love them and that you're there for them in any way that that you know you can support them and give them support. That's what our job is. It's not, you know, we can only do so much to push them in a direction. A lot of that is is going to be surroundings around them. We give them the best surroundings. That's what we can do. And I, I'm much better at preaching this than I am doing it, by the way. <laughs> uh, my kids are probably rolling their eyes as soon as they hear it. But, you know, it, it's a matter of you don't want kids to make the same mistakes we made. We don't necessarily want kids doing the same things we did. So you, you kind of put them in a cocoon. And in this day and age, you can't put them in a cocoon because there's so much stuff around them that that – you know, we can't control that. You just got to, you got to let them grow. You got to let them grow into the flower. And sometimes flowers aren't the prettiest thing until they bloom. Yeah. So I guess what you're saying is 
there's so much that you can't control and there's certain things you can, but you kind of got to just let it unfold how it's going to unfold. Yeah. And I think what you can control is your love, right? You can control your love for your children. You can control your support for your children. You can control, you know, your wishes, all this, but you can't control the outside world. And, and um, you know, you can only control what you can control and you can't control them. I mean, that's the big thing, right? You got to control you. You can't control them. Is there anything that you can speak to to start this company, Duncan Williams, Inc., in 1969 with six salesmen from what I saw? What type of obstacles, what type of hurdles, what type of challenges does somebody have to overcome to actually pull that off? Yeah, I think for my dad, it was a huge challenge, right? I mean, he had, he had been at work at a local bank and uh, had been successful there and decided to go out on his own. And uh, they were not excited about that. And they went out of their way to uh, try to stop him from doing it, and lack of a better words. But, you know, he wasn't going to, once again, it was not in his nature to take the easy way. I mean, he knew there was an opportunity here to do what he did. And so nothing was going to get in the way of that. And not being a Memphian, I mean, being from West Tennessee, but not from Memphis his support system was a lot different. And I can only imagine how much harder that would be without kind of that support system. But he was lucky in that he had made great friends when he was working at the bank and when he had been here. And they got in his corner and uh, literally were there from the day one of the office up until, you know, when you talk about Mr. Malmo and the Malmo family, I mean, just passing away this past year, you know, they had been here forever. Uh, so, he had great loyal friends and people working with us, and that that was really what had him let him overcome all the obstacles were there. But I, I can't imagine the the times he felt like that this was you know, what in the hell am I doing? You've talked about the wild wild west. You've also talked about how tough the bond business can be in a very competitive environment. How do you be a competitor? How do you be able to? defend yourself when needed? And then how also do you live without being calloused? So mine really comes down, I mean, I think loyalty is a huge, huge word. Um, and it's one I do not take for granted. You can hear it a lot, but it's the one I don't take for granted. It is ultra competitive, but there have been people who supported me when I got back to Memphis and while I've been at Memphis, you know, in the business that I'm extremely loyal to now and that I would make sure that you know, that loyalty is shown through our actions. Um, there are also people who haven't been quote-unquote loyal and haven't done things the right way, and I, I don't really have a whole lot of mercy for those people. You know, I will support you. If you decide to make your life better for you and your family and you want to leave Duncan Williams, Inc. and go do something else and you do it the right way, I'm going to give you a handshake and wish you luck. But if you do it the wrong way, then I'm not. And, and unfortunately, that is usually um, the side where I'm going to come after you as hard as I can, as often as I can, as many ways as I can. Because um, there's just a, a way to do business. And as cold as that sounds, it's just the way you have to survive when you're competing against so many good companies, but also multi-billion dollar companies that are doing our job. And, and here, you know, as a family business, you know, we've got to do things a little bit different. And so it really is protection of not just me or the company, but it's really the sales, other salespeople, other employees here. Somebody is working here and leaves and takes a bunch of clients with him. 
it's my job to protect everybody out on this floor. I mean, they, they've signed that agreement. That's what it is. There are a lot of firms that won't. They, you know, they'll threaten and they'll do this, but they really won't. And the point is, we will, and I will. And that's, you know, has been a long-standing thing with Duncan Williams, Inc. Do it the right way, you're never going to have a problem. Do it the wrong way, and we're going to see where that leads us. So when you come after it, or when you feel like you have to fight, it's out of protection of the greater good. Yes, for sure. I mean, that's the easy way to say it. I mean, the ego part of it is is also that I don't like to lose, and I want things done the right way. And if they're not, then if I'm pissed, yes, that's probably the baby way to act, right? That's the way I'm not supposed to say it, but that's the honest answer. But yes, it's to protect this firm and to protect the people in the firm. I mean, there's, you know, you just, sometimes you just have to do it. Sometimes you just can't, it's not going to work out in a way you hope all things work out. And when it does, when it goes that direction, you've got to be willing to stand up and say, you know, I'm, I'm, this is why we're doing it and this is how we're going to do it. We haven't talked about this too much yet, but you've got three to four different operating companies up underneath the ownership group, right? Right. What have you learned about backing the operator that you pick, giving them your support, but then also being okay when that season moves on and, you know, just how things through attrition, things through as life progresses, how to really do that well and still keep a long-term view of kind of what you're invested in, what you're building. Yeah, so lots of different business lines, right, between if you want to say real estate and farming, investments, wealth management. I mean, you can get into a whole lot of different areas which are affected in a whole lot of different ways. And obviously, as we've seen with the pandemic the last two and a half years, I mean, those all those different businesses handled it a different way. What I will tell you and anybody who's listening, hire the smartest people you can hire. Hire people way smarter than than me. Let them do their job and get the hell out of the way. That they they know what they're doing. This is where craft, where because of all the different business lines, my craft has to be more managing that and understanding everything that's going on and being involved, but not necessarily on a day-to-day, case-by-case, problem-by-problem, issue-by-issue. If I did that, I I would never, I'd never go home. So uh, you've got to let them do their job. The same way as we do with our kids or with our family, you've got to give them rope. You've got to let them take chances. You've got to support them. Uh, The minute somebody who's working with you doesn't feel your support, then they're probably ready to move on. It goes back to the loyalty word, right? I, I have, I'm going to show all these people the best loyalty I can. I'm going to give them my full support. And for that, I expect the same. When it's time to move on, you know, it, it's usually interesting. I, I don't don't know that there's been that many surprises. And I've been extremely blessed that we've never really had one of those major moving on situations. It's usually been through somebody's been here 30 or 40 or 50 years and it's time to retire and we're bringing somebody new in. And that's the way you want it to happen all the time. But we've had enough in in middle management that that have moved on in different ways. And usually both sides know it before it ever happens. You know, and I think it's a weight off both people's shoulders normally. Um, This is what I've seen. If they're like, thank you, and I'm like, thank you, and you... (laughs) You know, now we can both move on and, and, you know, that way. So it's actually an interesting thing when you see it happen. You took over this company in your early 30s, right? Yep. Was there a point that 
it was clear to you to learn that that you had to pick the right people, you had to pick the right people that you could you could find, and you had to support them, but get out of their out of their way because you would never be able to keep up with everything if that didn't happen. You know, I think you learned that. I've learned that way long ago. I think I learned it in sports and, and, you know, high school and elementary that there's somebody better than you, then get them the damn ball, right? <laughs> I mean, it's not that hard. You know, if you're better than somebody, then you want the ball, right? So I think you've learned it going through, um, you know, if you were in high school and had trouble with history, go see the person who knows history. And it, so it's just kind of a compilation of that. I think that continued to to push it. But uh, Don Clanton, who worked here for, for so long, would always say, and it's not really the smart, but he always say, don't get mad at your money, right? Don't get mad at the top producers or the smartest people or whatever. And you can't, you can't teach business smarts. You really can't. I mean, there's always a way to teach learning, and there's a way to learn in a classroom, and there's a way to learn all this. But you can't, some people just have a knack, and if you can find those people, then you need to grab them, hang on to them, hook them to your belt, whatever you got to do. But I've known a long time that you find the right people around you and you give them all they want, all they need to succeed for sure. Did you feel that you had to take this company over or did you feel like you had the option not to do that? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think the right answer would be I never felt any pressure to do it. The real answer is I didn't really know whatever, what else I was going to do. It was always, I always knew I wanted to be around the business, but I didn't know what that meant. Uh, So when dad died, then it's, you know, I'm the son and I'm blah, 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 blah. You know, so you put a lot of pressure on yourself from that standpoint. It it was a great opportunity to be able to do so many great things out of it. But yeah, I mean, I think it was, if I would have graduated and my dad was still living and I'd have say gone to New York and worked, would I have come back here and taken the company over when I was 32? I don't think so. Maybe it was 40. Maybe it would be, you know, now or maybe never. But circumstances happen and you don't look back on that. You just take advantage of what you got. So um, that's kind of how we're here where we are. It just happened. Yep. And there wasn't like a strong enough moment to where you felt like you didn't want to do it. Oh, I don't know about that. I mean, <laughs> I think we could probably go through many moments. You know, I think when I got back, in my 20s and, and trying to understand, you know, I worked in Birmingham for a couple of years, come back and was just working at the company, but trying to work myself into that leadership role. And, you know, I don't think I ever realized, or I hid very well the pressures that went on it, right? I mean, there was a, there's always the assumption of, he's got a great life, he, you know, he's doing this, or he's doing that. And, you know, I, I'm not one to sit in my, I mean, I'm going to always, when I'm, when I'm out, I'm going to be meeting people and I'm going to be talking and I'm always going to be kind of engaging, I guess, for for lack of a better word. Type A would probably be a good thing to say, <laughs> right? So, you know, I found myself in, in deep, dark places. I mean, not, not you know, as I always say, it was, it was very clear to me that I needed help and support just from a mental standpoint of um, how to get through it. And, and so, you know, what I... Who told people and, and um, you know, talked to my mom and, and just said, look, I, I need help. And I was so every, you know, couple of weeks I would fly to Atlanta and see a, a psychologist, business psychologist there who just walked me through the process and what it meant and how to how to gather my thoughts and how to keep them and how to journal and how to do those things that, you know, because 
you know, when nobody thinks you have anything bad happening, then, you know, you like to live that dream. You like to live that that picture. And so uh, there wasn't a whole lot of people for me to go talk to. Actually, there were a ton of people I could have go talk to. I chose not to. So that was a big help, and that really got me through a ton. Uh, obviously, my relationship with my wife and with Abby, and we dated for a long time, but she was always such a support staff and, and you know, kept kicking me in the ass in the right direction <laughs> I needed to go, and, and uh, you know, thank goodness for that. So from what it sounds like, you had this, you got pushed to clarity pretty early on. For sure, yes. Well, I say, I think, you get pushed to clarity, and then it, it's so clear that you can't see, right? Okay, so the clarity is my father dies, and then you think the clarity is you're going to take over this business, and da, 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 and then you realize what that means, and you, you're totally blind <laughs> because you have no idea. So, yeah, I mean, your, 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 your wake-up call is definitely there, right? So the alarm goes off really, really loud, and you can't hit snooze, but you're still, you know, drowsy trying to figure it out until you're really awake, you know, until the shower hits you or whatever, until you get your exercise in that morning, your blood's not really pumping. So clarity was definitely there, but, but what that meant took years to figure out. You referenced this a minute ago, but your father sadly passed away very young in his late 50s. Right. And your mother decided not to sell this company, Duncan Williams Eat, that we've talked a lot about right. so far. Is there anything that you can speak to? What would make someone want to take something over, stay in it, versus take the easy exit and be able to not to have to commit to something like that for a long period of time? Well, not in her case. I mean, I think in her case, it was extremely rare, right? So let's say we're, we're 2022 and I'm 54 and my dad's, you know, 87 or and and he passes away and at 54 and I say well I'm going to keep it and I'm going to run it right it's one thing it's a whole different thing when the the founder passes away at 56 the mom's you know in her 50s the son's in his 20s and here we are right so it's a what do we do now thing I they didn't know if I wanted to be in the business my sister same way my mom you know, while she had been around the whole founding of it and had always been around it, had never run an investment business. So at that point in time, there were there were lots of people who called and said, we would love to talk to y'all about taking over. But she chose the, the hard route, which was to make this thing work. And as, as she said, when I turned 32, you know, I've done my job now. If you screw it up, <laughs> it's on you. So, um, but yeah, so from... You know, 89 to 2000, her and Don Malmo and Frank Reed and Leonard Richmond, I mean, really, they they ran all the companies and all the ships, and she had tough meetings, and she did tough things and made tough decisions, but it was always about trying to give my sister and I an opportunity. So sacrifice. A total. But she had, that's the way her she had been her whole 21 years before with Emily and I. I mean, Dad worked, and his hobby was working, and then when he was bored, he was working, and when he was really busy, he was working. And so, you know, we just, we didn't really know any different. It was just kind of the way it was. And But she was such a strong lady, is such a strong lady, that, you know, we never, you don't recognize those things and those deficiencies until you probably have kids of your own, and, and then maybe you overdo it. Like, you know, I'm not going to miss a game. I'm not going to do that. But 
from that standpoint, we I, I know Emily and I both. We never felt like we were we were missing out on any parenting because my mom was such a strong parent. Is there anything that you could speak to on what truly keeps somebody where they're rooted with that kind of perspective or mindset about sacrifice to really do these things for the next generation of your family in what seems like an environment where it's just easy to only think about yourself and what you want? Yeah. I mean, I think the first is, um, you know, you got to believe and, and I'm, we won't get into the, the the religious talk, but obviously being a Christian is important to my family and to us, and we believe in that, and we can put our faith and hope and prayers you know, where that belongs. But I would also say for people who, who don't view it that way, you still got to believe, right? You still got to believe in ethics. You still got to believe in your morals. You still got to believe in something that will let you be willing to sacrifice yourself for other people. It's 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 not an easy thing, um, and it will be interesting to see, you know, having two kids in college and one in high school to, to watch their progression as we go through. But I know good and well that my grandparents and even my parents, you know, my mom always saw us as a different 30-year-olds, and they were 30-year-olds. And so this is this is the way we go forward. But I think your mom's upbringing in, in rural West Tennessee – was a huge part. She had sacrificed her whole life and, and being the youngest of seven kids or six kids, she had, people had sacrificed for her and it's your children and you always say you're going to sacrifice for your kids and I, and I believe that uh, with most people. So I, I, I do think it goes back to a belief system and, you know, you just, you've, you've got to have some type of moral compass that this is the right thing to do and it's not always about you. So you're saying that foundation can actually make somebody do these hard things? Yeah, but I but I'll say you know, I, it's Christians make bad decisions too. Christians right. do this and that too. So it's not it's it's that. I mean that's where the that's where Duncan Williams is. It's not to put that on anybody else, but I think having a moral code and a moral compass is it has is on you, right? That's we're going to make those decisions of what what is right and wrong what is good and bad. I think there has to be a world where we can have conversation where we disagree. And we're seeing less and less of that now, right? There's, there's, you're either here or you're there. And I think that's a sad, sad thing to see. You know, we need to get back. It doesn't mean you're going to agree, but you can have a civil conversation. And, and we've just gotten away from that. I hear you. Thanks for letting me ask that. I was just curious because... Yeah. It sounds like she put herself through hell, oh, yeah. for lack of a better word. Well, and, I mean, my sister and I both say she had us as kids, and that was probably hell enough, <laughs> so she was used to it. But but yes, I mean, she— um, And most people would never want to sign up for something like that. No, most people wouldn't. They would not. It's not anything they wouldn't. They just wouldn't sign up for it. Like, it would have, would have been an easy thing for them to say, sell it right now and be done. And been great. I mean, we would have—from a—, from a you know, let's say it would have been great financially. It would have been it would have been okay and good, but then the opportunities lost. And I think she's so proud of what Emily's done with her and her family, and you know what we've done here with the Duncan Williams logo. I mean, Duncan Williams brand and the companies. I mean, she knows that that would have never happened if she hadn't stood up and said, "I'm I'm I'm going to fight for this for a little while." It would have never existed. Do you think that comes from a place? of being in a situation prior where you know you have no choice but to press on. And so you get pushed to this point, this depth of 
struggle to surgery. I don't want to dramatize it, but I'm thinking about it through my own life as we're talking right yeah. now. Where and I've heard about you talk about your mom growing up in rural Tennessee, growing up with six siblings, and heard about your family. Heard about you know these things about your father building this company with her ability to say yes to that. Do you think for somebody to choose to do that is it only because they've gone through something else before that they knew that they had to they had to just stay in it to get it? Well, to do it? I think it goes to the they don't have any fear. Right, there's no fear of staying in it when you don't have running water till you're 13 years old. What the hell is a fear of taking a successful company and hiring some good people when you got to go get the chickens or milk the cows or, or literally go pick the cotton for your family every year? Really and truly, was it that big a risk? I mean, for her, was it that big of a pressure decision considering what she grew up with and what my dad grew up with? So I think there's no question that your upbringing and her background gave her the strength to say, I'm not going away, and I'm going to do this, and this is what it is. And there was really no argument. I mean, this is, once it was stated, that's every, we all moved down that path that this is the way it was going to be. Is that entrepreneurship? People that can look at something and look at the challenges that it might be, but just not get intimidated by it? I think it is. It's kind of probably different. Um, she would never say she was an entrepreneur. She would say she was a mother which maybe, maybe those are one and the same and we never think about it like that. I think, once again, that, that she was trying to give us opportunities to stay in something that my father started and she probably never viewed it as being an entrepreneur. I think it's a great question. And it's a great, um, you know, something I'll take out of this and think about. You know, maybe one of my, on the second version, I'll have to give you the answer after <laughs> I think about it for a little bit. You talked about the progression of things. I'm just curious from where you saw things when you took over and where things ended with this broker-dealer company in 2021. What what was the progression like for you? What did you see? Where were things when you took over? What were the changes that you saw when you decided to start thinking about the sale process? Oh, it's, it's amazing how fast it's gone, right? I mean, I've been back 30 years now. I remember the first day. I remember the 20th day, I remember parts of the 50th day, I remember the 1,000th day. There's so many things that the progression, you know, it's kind of like when you're with your buddies in college all four years, you don't realize somebody's gained 40 pounds, (laughs) and then somebody who hadn't seen them come in and goes, well, I see you've gained your 40 pounds. You know, it's like, wait, what? I don't even know. Or some of us that are hair challenged, you know, we don't really think we're bald until we see a picture of us five years ago. It's like, how did that happen? I've seen it that way my whole life. (laughs) So I think progression-wise has been, um, you know, it's just all happened, but it seems like it's just been one one big progression. Uh, I think the, the what I'm most proud of is the pride that the employees of Duncan Williams Inc. feel for the company they work for. And not that they didn't have that before. It was just a different, it was just different. Um, it wasn't, you know, they were all, you know, in the bond world making money on commission and it wasn't about really the company doing the social stuff that, that we do now. And so I, they, I think now people in this company can walk around this community and say they work at Duncan Williams, and, it is, and they, they, it's a prideful thing because of what we've been able to do in our community. I think that, that's probably, I would tell you, you know, hell, we have, still have people here that were here when I started working too. So 
we still, even being bought, we still run as a family business. Um, we still think of ourselves as a family business in certain ways, at least in how we communicate with each other, the things we do, what we support. And I think that's, you know, it's it's super satisfying to me to to see it, be, be it live at the garden the other night and to go back and to just to see the employees once again at a table listening to an outdoor concert that their company's name's one of the t- title sponsors, really one of the founders of it, and and they're having a ball. And all they can say is thank you and this is awesome. And those those things are, are just really, you know, that's what makes it all worth it. So let's say if you're a bond salesman or saleswoman and you're making a million a year selling bonds. You'd be real happy. <laughs> <laughs> right now, yeah. I guess. What does that actually mean from a community standpoint, from a pride standpoint? How can you actually quantify the community work to the company and to the experience in a very, again, self-motivated, ambitious? It's a gr- another great question and one that, that, you know, I don't want to speak for others. I mean, there are certain people that they're in it for making the money and they don't give a damn about the social stuff, right? But those people usually don't last long here um, because of, you know, we make you, we, we, we're, it's just who we are. And so why do you want to be at a company that, that is the true beliefs of giving back and doing all this and really expectations? If, if you don't, if you don't like that, you know, you can go find somewhere else and sell bonds and, and probably do just as well. So I think that's part of who we are and what we are. And, and um, most people enjoy it. Their families enjoy it. Their spouses, once again, they, they take a sense of pride in, in where their husband or wife work. Uh, we do so much stuff together as a group that those things are so important. So, you know, we don't, you can't make somebody do it, but you can sure try to inspire or poke, press, prod, whatever you can do. For How can people not, hell, they're not giving their own money back, right? They're getting to enjoy the company doing it. So <laughs> it, it, shouldn't, it shouldn't be that hard <laughs> for them to enjoy it. You know, it'd be one thing if I said, I'm going to take 10% of your check and give it back then. I can see why they maybe wouldn't enjoy it as much, but they're not losing anything there. It's all benefit to them. They're able to say, look what we're doing. So you're, you're almost describing this, how an individual or human being, how they're wired, if they're wired in a way yes. to where yeah. they are more well-rounded from a communal standpoint and a team aspect, then it's going to fit. And if somebody might only be interested in what they're personally bringing in and what they're personally involved with, it'll just weed people out. Yeah, I think so. You know, I don't ever want to say I'm more well-rounded than somebody else because they don't jump around and put their name on a building or put their name on a concert. It's who we are, right? It's who we've chosen to be as a company. And I think if you don't really like that uh, feeling, then, yeah, I think you, you probably find yourself somewhere else. I asked you last time, which this got scratched, because of some audio difficulties. So we're doing it here in your office to make sure we have A-plus quality. It sounds being nice. I, I was beating on the desk <laughs> and screaming or yelling or my phone was ringing or something. I, I, I messed up the audio bad. So now we're in the quiet conference room. Yeah. Doing this. We got John here <laughs> mic'd up, bringing the studio to you. But can you say anything about the impact and the benefit from a business standpoint because of the branding, the community work, what has that created from a from a business standpoint? 
Well, I, I think, and I just touched on a little bit, I think our employees are super proud of what we've done, uh, not just at Duncan Williams, Inc., but at Duncan Williams Asset Management, at Hickory, at Sunshine, at, you know, really everything we've, we've been involved in, there's been giving back to the community. Now it's all in a different way, and Duncan Williams, Inc. has always been kind of the mothership of that. We'll continue to see DWAM or, or the asset management companies, that they will continue to rise and much more stuff will follow under them, obviously, as the bank continues to make changes at, at Duncan Williams, Inc. and name changes and little things like that. But I think, you know, creating a brand has is, is always been something that, that is, uh, I've loved watching it from the outside for other brands. And, and we have, I mean, when you have a FedEx and an AutoZone and an IP, you know, right in your backyard as far as creating brands, I mean, it, it's you can learn a lot, uh, no question about it. But I, I think, you know, I think our brand inside of the Memphis City loop around is, is you know, pretty well known and they may not know what we do, but they know the do well or they know the DW and that's pretty cool. You know, I think once again, there is ego. There's always ego involved, Sam. And I've said that before as as I'm, I think I'm, I understand and want to understand we're pretty good, but I have an ego and it's not a small one. And I enjoy knowing that Duncan Williams Inc. is doing anything in the community and that it's recognized. And so, you know, right, wrong, or indifferent, that's part of it. But I think it's been more really the, the things we've picked and the things we've done have always been about trying to make our better, our community better and also allow our employees to enjoy that while we're doing it. So as a result, you're just saying it's powerful when you're able to do it right. Yep. You create a lot of opportunity. You create yep. a lot of engagement a lot of camaraderie, but then obviously you create a lot of exposure. And what you're saying yeah. is being in Memphis and seeing these Fortune 500 companies with incredible reputations, it's been a lot of fun being a private family held, yep. even though large size, just being able to experiment with yourself. And, and it's also been a personal yep. passion. Yeah. And I think, you know, the exposure is a great word. I mean, exposure is good and bad, right? I mean, it also puts yourself out there, especially in the social media world where, if I so choose to dance on a table one night with my shirt <laughs> off, somebody's going to have it on. And guess what? It's going to be out there because of it. You know, if if I were Joe Blow and did that, nobody would pay any attention. So you you always have, that has to be part of your, your brain. Uh, that, you know, it, it is like you've really put yourself out there. And we all know that people, you know, sometimes unfortunately want to see people fail. And, um, you know, that's a that's another conversation all in itself of, of our where our world is today. But you just so you gotta know and you gotta be cognizant of that. And I'm not always great at that. I mean yeah. I will tell you. If anybody videoed me at the Hootie concert the other night or at Darius Rucker concert, then you know, I may be in trouble already <laughs> for all I know. But uh short news cycles. Yeah, it's very short, which is a good thing. And that is a good thing about it. But but I do think, you know, I think that the pride, and once again, I think just having my mom's proud of it, right? And that's a big thing. I mean, she, she loves what this company's done, and, and that, that makes me proud. Hey, everybody. We're going to take a quick pause here from the show and hear a word from one of our sponsors. After that, we'll get back to the show. Do you want to make efficient use with your time? Now more than ever, traveling hassle-free is harder to find. 
AB Jets is one of the safest private air companies in the world with impeccable service with nonstop access to most destinations around the USA. AB Jets has received the prestigious Argus Platinum rating the last eight consecutive years, which goes to less than 5% of operators in the world. Bypass the hassle and get an AB Jets jet card that gets you 10 or 25 hour flight options that makes your experience hassle-free. AB Jets carries up to eight passengers and is one of the largest Lear 60 operators in the U.S. Go to abjets.com for more information or call them at 888-520-JETS. That's J-E-T-S to travel on your own terms. I can't understand, just based off of what I read, why there's such a decrease in broker-dealer only firms versus more of a diversified approach. Can you so do you I, explain I, I mean, I, I don't know that anybody knows the answer, but but I give a, a pretty good one. You know, we're 7,000 broker-dealers 15 years ago, and there may be even, maybe pre-that. Now there's 2,800 or 3,000. So it's more than half have gone away. A lot of it is, you know, an economic class. And, and one of the things I do remember is that, you know, they call, they have these businesses or startups and whatever, and they have some that's called, you know, a mature business. And mature business is when you start to see profits go like this and expenses go like this. And ultimately, right, the expenses get more of the profits and, and that's not a good thing. And businesses have to reinvent themselves. And the bond business, honestly, has not done a great job of reinventing itself. Uh, we're commission salesmen. We're still doing it the same way. It's still the same model. I mean, it is changing somewhat, but it continues to kind of be the same thing, and especially in Memphis. So we have, I mean, literally, the bond business has this thing called a Memphis model, which is a higher paid-out commission than there are in other parts of the world. And, you know, it's just the way we do things here. And, and so, you but, get but a higher it, fee just by being here. Well, not a, you, the salesmen get paid more, yeah, here than they would any, than anywhere else. And, and it's a lot of because there were smaller firms here and we all did so many things different ways. But really, that's what it is. You have uh, children. So let's say of those 7,000 firms, you had all these mom and dads that started them and made the kids said, no thanks, I don't want to get in that, and there's nobody really to pass it on to, and they just kind of start to go away. And I think you've seen a lot of that. It's just the new generation not wanting to get into a you know, bond commission sales business. So, and then they're being absorbed by banks. Banks are buying some. A lot of them are just closing. Some of them are switching completely to asset management like we did with DWAM and spin it out, and they're just doing the – whole uh, fee income stuff. And that's really grown. So where you've seen commission-based go, you've seen fee income grow. And that's probably the where you've seen a lot of right side go to the left side. And that's where you get the benefit of having both lumping into one. Right. Earlier, you talked about Duncan Williams Asset Management is something that you started, you spun out a couple of years ago. And now with the sale of Duncan Williams Inc. broker-dealer side, you've talked about the work, the community, the branding, the philanthropy will start to funnel through more through the asset management side. Correct. And when anybody sells, and there was even an, an article here locally, you know, about when your company sold, just the impact to a local community. Right. But you take any any organization, any large company, and there's 
you know, people can be critical of those dollars that leave that local city or yep. that geographical area. For sure. Can you maybe explain your thought process behind creating new vehicles to continue on the work and the impact versus where maybe others, if money gets pulled out of the system, maybe there's about different ways about keeping money in the system and, and keeping the work going, just doing it through new ways. I think, um, you know, once again, it's a, it's a, there's no right or wrong answer for Duncan Williams personally. It's important that I have a vehicle to keep giving back to the community. And now, well, let me say this. South State has been awesome working with us with our commitments that we had. You know, all of the commitments we have were really long-term commitments, and they've honored them or are going to honor them. And so nothing's really changing. I mean, it's a two- to four-year process before we really start to see any big changes in any of that stuff. But at the same time, what what's super valuable to me in my community in Memphis, Tennessee, and Shelby County, and this this area is not necessarily what you know, the board of South State Bank feels is the most important thing that we should be sponsoring. And so that, and that's, I mean, that's their job and I respect it. And it's not that they're not giving tons of money. They are, it just may not be to something in Memphis, Tennessee, right? Um, but they allow employees, they're, they're, they're really good at, at allowing employees to actually give and them supporting giving to local stuff. So we'll just have to wait and see. But for me, yes, it was important that when, when Duncan Williams Asset Management, you know, opened that part of our mantra was really to, to improve our community. And um, we've, we do really ask at Duncan, at, over at DWAM, that the, the employees there are, are heavily involved in community. It's kind of part of their job description is to be somewhere between three and five nonprofits each. And what that means is up to them. But, but, you know, you're going to be giving back. And that one is really, I mean, it is true in the hardcore of the way the company was founded. So there is no question. If you don't like that, then it's definitely not a firm for you. I hear you. So I don't know that I answered it saying in a great way. I mean, some people just, they, they give and give and they, they work and work and they sell and then they take a break. And they're probably doing a lot more things uh, than you think with that money. But because they don't have a Duncan Williams Inc. to give it, then you just don't realize it. So it may just it may not be their name, right? They may had ABC Corp. and their name's Tom, and so you don't recognize Tom's giving, even though ABC Corp. And you know what we want to continue, and what I want to continue is the Duncan Williams name and brand in this community, and so that's why it, it's also important that that DWAM is that active. Yeah, given the fact that you were recent co-president of the Memphis Chamber. That's so, right. Is that correct? Yeah. Well, so I'm. I was head of the uh, chairman circle for a little bit, and I'm now vice chair of the board. So anyway, I'm in, in senior leadership at the chamber. Yeah, yeah. yeah. stand corrected. But thank you. <laughs> Can you speak to what it actually takes, or what has to happen for a city and the business community to work together to create a city? with strong education, job creation, population growth, et cetera? Well, I don't know. The education thing is is one that, once again, a lot more smart people than me that are trying to work on the problems of education. And there's been good things and there's been bad things. I was going to say bad. There's been good numbers that come out of it and there's been numbers that aren't uh, maybe as, as 
numbers aren't as good as they want them to be. There's never going to be anything wrong with trying to figure it out. I mean, one of the problems we have in our public education world is that there, it's such a big bureaucracy. And, you know, some would question whether people are held accountable enough. And the other point is our kids have to have a great platform to learn. Are we really giving them that? And that's not for me. I think Memphis has, has really become ground zero for trying to change the education or figure it out. And it's been good and bad both. And I think the people who have invested the most money in trying to figure out would tell you the same. It's that they, you know, they learned a lot and some have been good things, some have been not. I go back to this thing of, of we've got to be a city. I mean, to make Memphis a better city is we've got to be able to provide jobs to our young people. Our young people have to feel like they have an opportunity to change their life, to get out of the poverty line. But you can go to Charlotte, you can go to Raleigh, you can go to Nashville, you can go to Austin, and guess what? There's plenty of bad, you know, sort of bad being things we don't report it in the news are happening in those cities too. I mean, it just it's just it just happens. So there's no utopia, and when there is, I want to hear about <laughs> it also. So, but if our kids don't think they have a chance, Sam, if they don't really believe that they can get out of poverty, then School to school really matter, right? If your mindset is, I'm just trying to live to be 25 years old, or I'm trying to, then school isn't important. So there has to be a, a progression. There has to be, I think, you know, we've got to get our young children taught, because if you can't, you know, the 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 percentages, and I don't want to misquote it, but, you know, if you don't have fourth grade reading level by fourth grade, your percentage of being incarcerated or something, it's just but it's a ridiculous amount. I want to say it's like 62% or something. And I don't even know how to just pull 62%. It may be higher, but it's a lot. And the point is, we, so we have to give our our really young children a chance. We got to give our high schooler a chance. We got to give we got to give the kids that, that graduate high school, go to a half-year college, get out of college, have a child, get married. All of a sudden, they're 23. We say, how do you go make money? Well, now, you know, you got to be able to have that certificates and there's a lot of good money to be made in this town, in all towns, but we put such an emphasis on going to college, and in my opinion, there's a lot of people out there who wish they, you know, the debt that they rang up while they were at college, and then you get out of college, and guess what? The job you want to get in there, that ain't done anybody any good, right? It's done nobody any good. So we have to support those that say, I want to be... I mean, you go, you go be a um, a welder right now, and I, you're going to make more money than most people up here selling bonds. Right. I mean, by the time you're a level four welder, I, I would bet in this business, there aren't a lot of people doing sound. And I mean, it's something that that is a specialty, and you got to learn how to do it. And and you know, going and taking history is in college and bringing up four years of debt, and then get out and say what I want to do now. It doesn't. Great, you know a lot about history, but you don't know anything else. And so, you know, we've got to really, when the when the kids are getting to that point of what they're going to do, we've got to support them in all directions. Want to go to college? It's awesome. It's a great thing. I will give you a stat. I do know more kids graduate from universities in Tennessee than there are open jobs every year. So, if you really take that and listen to what I just said, if you took every open job in Tennessee and filled it with a student from just the University of Ten of, from the Tennessee universities, there would still be extra that you can't fill a job. Right. So that's counting all jobs. 
Now you figure half of those jobs are really college grad. Then you're going to have half your people who graduate in universities that don't have a job in the state. Doesn't make any sense. So how do you create jobs? Well, you got to bring businesses in. But especially in today's, I mean, how do you see that playing out the next 10, 20, 30 years with automation, with robotics, with all these things that are continuing to try to create? You you better learn. We got a T to advanced manufacturing, and that's what the chamber here is doing, what the city's doing. And what really Memphis has is good opportunities anybody to do. Obviously, Ford coming here and doing the billions of dollars they're doing. I mean, look at St. Jude, what they just announced, the billions of dollars. Those are jobs that you better, you got to learn some stuff. Not necessarily college degrees, but you've got to learn. I mean, I can promise you Ford is not going to be all college degrees. It's going to be people who've learned a special skill set. And so, you know, we have to do a better job of teaching that. And we're going to do that. I mean, we're, we're building those things, I think, in the city that will we'll teach that. The population from like 24 to 32 that's, you know, looking to better themselves but don't have a college degree right now. How, how do they better themselves? They can't go to a two-year college. They got kids. They got a wife. They sure as hell can't go to a four-year college. They got kids. They got a wife. They can't do the debt. They can go take, you know, get these certificates and literally take 12 hours a week for 12 weeks or whatever, and all of a sudden they're making fifty, sixty, seventy thousand $70,000, and they can stack on certificates on top of that. And we should we should celebrate that instead of trying to make it sound like, oh, you didn't go to college. So there's a lot of stuff out there. Uh, it's, it's, once again, a lot of discussions need to be had around it, and some people believe one way and others believe another. And, uh, but we've got to do what we've got to do to, to give, our, give our community the chance to succeed and the feeling that they have a chance to succeed. If you can, if you can provide seven, eight, ten thousand 10,000 people a year, those fifty dollars or $60,000 jobs, you'd start doing the math. So ten at fifty thousand dollars a year, you know, you're talking about five hundred million. Right. Do that for five years, you're talking about two and a half billion to your tax thing. You know, do it for ten years, it's five billion dollars a year that all of a sudden is going to a tax base in a city that didn't have it. It changes the whole life. It changes the next generation coming through. You could have a whole year of podcasts just on this one subject, and everybody would be a little different. For me, it goes back to, to we've got to give our kids a chance. And what does that mean? I, I don't have all the answers, but, but they got to believe that they can get out of poverty or that there's no reason to try to study and make yourself better academically. If you don't think you're ever going to need it, why do it? You know, I felt like I needed education. I still hated geometry and some of these <laughs> other ones, right? Well, if you don't think you're going to need it, why the hell would you ever want to do it? So to take this another layer deeper, from a strategic standpoint, from a macro standpoint, if you tasked with the responsibility of actually solving issues with education, with population growth, with economic opportunity, you have to start where the market is at, continuing to head. You have to start where innovation is continuing to move. Yep. And then you have to identify the biggest needs within that. Correct. And then you have to build it backwards by providing those opportunities within the local community. So, and that ties in with education, that ties in with all aspects of the community because you have to be rowing in the same direction if you're going to actually execute and then create as much opportunity for all those people on the way. And you can't get people rowing in a direction where the world is not moving. Is that what you're saying? That's right. Well, let's just take Ford, for example. Ford's going to have to have a special kind of worker, 6,000 of them or whatever, in their plant. 
who's, does anybody here know how to do that right now? Right. So guess what? We better start training 6,000 people to work, right? And they got a battery plant right beside us, going to have three. And really, this is what most automobile stuff will tell you. For every one job that's created by the actual automobile company, four jobs are created around it. So that's 24,000 jobs of training people. So we've got to be able to move. We've got to be able to maneuver. There are certain cities, Orlando has a great program where the business community and the education community and the city elected officials are behind it. And they, you know, they have stuff like apartment maintenance and you come in and you get your certificates and they have a, they have literally apartment units set up in this warehouse and you learn how to fix the sink and you learn how to fix all the things that happen in apartments. Uh, They have the welding stuff. They have truck driving. They have firefighters. I mean, it's, they have uh, electrical workers where they climb poles and they learn, get out there and they learn how to do it. So, it really is. I mean, there's there's models out there that are good. Uh, there's models out there that we're working on. There's models out there that we will be we will have before um, too long. I truly believe that. Is that fulfilling in any way to feel that you're a part of a solution for oh, something yeah. that touches so many people? It is, but you know, there'll still be a number of people who say this is horrible, and we're not giving, letting people get a college. I mean, there's going to be people negative about it, but. You know, we can't worry about that. I mean, we, we all have to. And, and I'm not saying they're wrong. What I'm saying is I, this is what I believe is the best way to help our community. And so I'm going to go at it full bore. If it's wrong, I mean, as I've told you, that my job is to say I was wrong. I was dead wrong. And this is why I was wrong. So let's fix it. But I don't, I just find it hard to believe that if you can have citizens in your community believe they can change the way they're, they're, next generation life will live because they have an actual chance to have a good job. I, I can't imagine that going in the bad direction. And so it sounds like at this stage of your life, you and others, this is one of your biggest priorities. For sure. This city is one of my biggest priorities. Have you ever thought about running for mayor? Oh, hell no. I mean, I've had, no. I mean, I laugh and say that. My Abby would, would throw me and you out of this seat if she heard you <laughs> ask me that question. Uh you know, I think I've, I've had people bring it up to me, but I, I think I can be much more, I would rather serve the mayor than serve as mayor. How about that? Yeah. <laughs> be, be mayor of what you got. I, yeah, I mean, I think I can make more of a difference in a different way than as an elected official. I would hope I have the patience and the and the will and the love to do it, but I'm not always sure I would. Yeah. In addition to everything that we've talked about so far, you seem to have, you and your family, have an ability to build things under the radar. And something that I saw is that I think you all have 20 senior living facilities throughout the state of Mississippi and Alabama. Is that correct? Yep. Can you say or speak to anything that you've seen from that space, given the fact of life expectancy continuing to increase, but then also focusing in potentially maybe overlooked markets? And what that's been like and, and then the opportunity it creates? Well, I think it's a great opportunity. It's a great business opportunity, right? It, it's, um, once again, not necessarily in this community, but something that we were involved in through some actually bond underwriters back in the day when they were doing certain stuff in small cities. And we just kind of kept learning about it. And it became, you know, another realization of here's, a, here's you know, there's a, so many we would call senior living facilities. So what we're really dealing is assisted living, which means the, the clients can still get up and really take care of themselves. 
So it's 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 trying to get them comfortable and in a good place and give them a pleasurable place to live kind of before those next stages that, that may not be that way. But there's a lot of small towns that have them. There are a lot of secondary cities, and I would say Tupelo, Birmingham, you know, just we, we've, we've ventured into that where we were just kind of more rural, and, and we were the kind of the one show pony in the town, and, and which was great because, you know, you got parents and you got kids that want to make their parents in a comfortable place but don't necessarily want them living in their house, so you got to have this. And But then as people started moving more out to the country too, it became obvious that this was going to continue to grow. We feel like in the next decade that it's there's a huge growth pattern here. I mean, if you look at, at the age, uh, it's 84 years old. You know, it takes it's going to be another seven to ten years before you really start seeing a jump in those 84 year olds. Now, what's is interesting is we don't know what COVID did. We don't know the percentage of what COVID took out of those of that percentage. So there's going to be that's a two or three year process to look and see what the numbers really are. But I will tell you this. It also was one hell of a wake-up call when you're in the assisted living business and COVID spread across this country and, and what it's like mentally, uh, physically, for our staff, uh, for us, for Jay Curtis, who runs it. The, I mean, it was I – mean, those people were locked in a prison, and there's, there's no other better way to say it. They were locked in a prison. Couldn't get out, couldn't leave, nobody could come in and see them. We had people sneaking out windows, people sneaking in windows. If you got it, you literally were carried to another facility that was your COVID facility. I mean, it, it was brutal. Um, the staff working in the hazmat suits and you have COVID wings and you're having to pay, you know, you're paying them two times or whatever, which they're, they're volunteering to do it for their families, but they don't know what it means because then they go home. You know, so they we had them all. We had all the managers up here. This would have been a little over a year ago, probably when they first, when COVID really started settling down the first time. And I said, you know, I want to know, you tell me your best and word. I just want to hear it. And I, and I, so one of the ladies got up, she said, you know, talking about the best was just watching the people come, starting to bloom back in and to be around. And then she started talking about the worst and it was, I can't imagine going, and she lost, just lost, and then everybody lost it. And I was like, you know, this was not a good question to ask. Like, can't, imagine, I, can't imagine what? what can't was, imagine it happening, anything like this happening again. That I didn't see my family for six months. This was, and this, she worked there. Right? It was, this was not a, this wasn't a sick person. She, she chose to be there and not be around her family for six months because she didn't know what she was going to bring home to her family. Like they saw, when I say saw each other, they didn't have dinner together or they, you know, those type of things. She was quarantining. Yes. And so, you know, you just, it, it was hard, but from a business standpoint, we think um, you know there's great opportunity going forward in it. And and but it's also important. Once again, it gets back to that moral compass. Is our job is to provide a great place for people, men and women, that are in the end of their life, and and we want them to be comfortable. Now they're not hospice. They're not any of that. So this is really the last probably place they will be where they're living on their own, you know, quoting quotes and shit. I can see me, I'm doing my fingers. Yeah. And then it, then from here it goes to different stages of the assisted living or, or you know, memory care or blah, 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 hospital, you know, whatever that may be. So we, we you know, we want to have good menus and we want to have good movie theaters and we want to, but this is, so with COVID you, you kind of relearn things and what's important. 
And so we're kind of, you know, taking it all in right now and, and still figuring out what that means. So you're, you're saying you started to see how these facilities were underwritten years ago. And you saw That's how we started learning about it, yeah. And then you were like, I want to get in on this. Yeah. We saw a lot of mom and pop, Sam. So a lot of families owned places. They were getting older. Their kids had no interest in being in, this, in that business. They had grown up in it. So we go back to the second and third generation. Yeah. Their whole life they had been in these places, and they just, like, I don't want to do that. It's not when you're 16 and you're probably having to work in the assisted living thing and do whatever and say, no, thanks. So, but all the managers want to stay there. All the owners didn't want to leave. They just didn't want the, they had a chance to cash out and didn't want the liability. So we were able to go in and provide liquidity for them, let them still work there, give them, you know, if they want to be there two years or five years or whatever, if they're still doing a good job, we'd love for them to be there because it just, it just makes, they still run it like their deal. They have ownership. Yep. And we started doing that around, and, um, you know, it's just kind of led up the pipe chain a little bit. But, um, yeah, I think it's going to be – it's exciting for sure. Is there anything else that's caught your interest? Yeah, I mean, that's the big one. I mean, I think the wealth management here and what we've learned through that through DWAM is kind of the 401K world is is really underserved. So you have all these people who work their tail off and may have a 401K, but they really don't know what it means. They're not really talking to a human being. They're calling a 1-800 number and, you know, they're getting in funds or they're getting in this that they probably don't know about. So we've really taken advantage of that, of servicing every client in the in the 401ks we represent. The other thing is the the charity, so the nonprofits in Memphis, our nonprofits everywhere, you know, those people should have the best retirements in the world because they work for half price basically all the time and they do 10 times the work. And so we've we've really done a lot. I think we're representing over we're we're now representing over 80 nonprofits in Memphis, which I'm super, super proud of. Just because it, it's another thing of, of we've recognized it and now let's let's go take advantage of it in a way to help. You know, that's not a big money item. That's just more of a we're giving the people who need the financial support, we're going to give them that. Yeah. You, you were talking about these assisted living facilities. You're talking about understanding where these people were at that stage of life and essentially that dictating what you offer, how you serve, how you hire, how you run those facilities. Yep. What keeps somebody centered on the customer for decades and never losing that focus? It's a great question. Uh, My dad was always big on the client and customer. I heard that even, you know, throughout life. I think when you're a marketing major more than a finance major in marketing, you hear it's always a customer, right? It's all about the client. It's all about the customer. And I I think it's just who I am. It's what, what, you know— it's what I enjoy being around. I enjoy being around our customers. I enjoy being around our clients. I enjoy being around our, you know, residences. I mean, it's a neat thing to see in one way or another how you're changing people's lives. And and I enjoy telling our story to them, right? I mean, I think there's probably a lot of assumptions. I mean, hell, there's so many people don't when they see Duncan Dash Williams, they don't even know there's one person. So when you actually introduce yourself and they kind of look at you like, you know, who's the smart aleck? You know, who's, you know, you're not that funny and say, no, that's really who I am. I, mean, I can't tell you how many people have hung up on me or, you know, told me I was, I mean, I had to show them my card for them to believe me. 
Um, Wait, hung up on you? What are you talking about? Yeah, like, hey, it's Duncan Williams. They're like, yeah, you're real funny and hang up. Or or they'll call here and I'll say, you know, Duncan Williams. They'll say, yeah, I need need, need to speak with Mr. Williams or Mr. Duncan. I'm like, well, this is, you know, know, I've had them call and say they knew both Mr. Duncan and Mr. Williams. I say, well, that's pretty good if you knew both of them because I don't even know both of them. So, you know, you just, it's, uh, you just, you don't know. I mean, you just kind of get the roll of those kind of flows. What are you most concerned about in the future? Well, I think as we sit here on July, whatever it is, 2022. 19th. Yeah, I touched on it. I think our country's in a in a tough spot right now. I think there's there's a lot of – I'm a believer in change, but I'm a believer in change that happens through conversation and through – I think a lot of misunderstanding. I think social media is a huge part of that. I mean, I've watched my kids worry about who follows them or, you know, if you, you see somebody on Instagram or on Snapchat, well, they all live the perfect life, and we all know <laughs> that that doesn't really happen. So I, I'm concerned about our kids and what they're, what's being put in their heads. I mean, I've listened to some of the documentaries of, of the founders of some of these services, and they've said, biggest mistake, they wish they'd never done it. They don't let their kids on it. That's That's a little scary, but I think – more than anything, it's just the division. And I'm sure it's been here before. You know, I wasn't cognizant of Vietnam or Korea and all that. Back in 68 when I was born, I, I, I'm not even sure all that stuff was going on. I mean, we had obviously the civil rights movement, which was a big deal. And obviously in Memphis was a big deal, but I don't remember that. So I'm not going to say we're as divided as we've ever been, because I honestly don't know that. But I know we're as divided as we've ever been since I can remember and I just think the lack of respect, and I'm not, this isn't just a political thing. I'm just talking about the lack of respect for common decency is something we should all worry about. What are you most excited about? I'm most excited about this is the greatest country in the world. And if anybody can take all that stuff on and kick its ass, it's us, <laughs> right? So once again, this country's been through a lot and, you know, a very short time. We're not talking about thousands of years. We're talking about literally hundreds of years. So if anybody can do it, it's us. And I'm excited to be to see where it goes. I'm super excited about Memphis and, and what's happening here. I'm super excited about, you know, really my next chapter and what that means. I'm super excited about now watching, as I said, two of my kids really be in college and where that goes. And, you know, life, I'm just, I'm excited. It, it's I have a a pretty cool platform um, to be able to do some pretty cool things, and I plan on taking full advantage of it. Is there anything that sticks out to you about what you might not have received had you not had the mentors that you referenced earlier when you were in your late 20s, early 30s? I would have not seen you in my office asking me these (laughs) questions because nobody would have given a damn about what I said. (laughs) That's for sure. You know, it's it's interesting you ask that. I mean, I, I don't probably so much of, of being involved in the city, I wouldn't have seen. I, I don't know the business. If I wouldn't have had those mentors, maybe the business runs in a different direction. And I'm, I'm maybe we were just as successful, but I'm a quiet, you don't know it. You know, I, I think personally, if I wouldn't have, I mean, forget business-wise and what I wouldn't have seen, I, I probably just would have been, it would have, I'm not sure I wouldn't have been a train wreck. Right. I mean, there's just paths that I could have easily gone down that would not have ended up near, and they're not sure as heck not perfect now, but they could have, you know, gone in a lot of different ways. And I think 
having those mentors and knowing that I still have those mentors and not just, you know, it's funny. I'm going to actually be out of town next week. I was talking to big Kim Wilson and I'm meeting him just to say, you know, one afternoon, just to say hi. I saw big Spence. I can talk to, you know, when I say Pitt and Bill Rose, I I have so many great people who are willing that, that literally I can call and, you know, they'll talk as long as they want or as short as I want. So it wasn't just in my 20s. I mean, trust me, I, I need them in my 50s just as much as I did in my 20s. So I, you know, another thing I would always say, and especially to the younger generations that come up, don't be afraid of that. Don't be, don't be embarrassed by needing help. Don't be afraid of needing help. And when I say help, I'm talking about any kind of support you can get. Take full advantage of it. We've all, I mean, it's it's less rare than most people would think it is, but I think those that choose not to do it when they get to be older, and I would be interested to actually ask you that question, is you've talked to enough successful people in these things to ask them what are they regret, and I'm sure a lot of them is that they didn't do things. Why didn't they do certain things? And we all have that, but I, but mine's not going to be because I didn't seek out other professionals to help me in questions that I thought they knew better than me. I've been blown away at understanding in detail how little most people <laughs> had figured out along the way and how things happened that were very good to them, things happened that were very hard, but they stayed at it yep. and it worked out. Yep. And even people that are not very religious point to some higher power. Right. I agree. And then also there was key moments in people's lives where somebody else kind of saw something in them along the way and they helped. They didn't give them necessarily the path that they were on, but they helped them see or they helped guide, you know, every path different, different routes for them to go down that ended up that they then worked very hard at, but that, you know, just really impacted their life and their family's life. And, and also too, uh, you know, growing up in a, affluent area and going to nice schools and seeing things a certain way. And then you actually get to know people who people talk about and you see how little they care what other people think right? and how if they had to start over again the next day, they would do it. It's refreshing. Yep. And it's energizing. And so... I've been blown away that, yes, people have an ego to a certain degree, but at the same time, it seems that a lot of people I've spent time with would do whatever they need to do to get it done, whatever that may look like. And I think there's a lot of people that sit on the sidelines and evaluate, critique, yep. but they're not in the game. And it's fun and impactful when you're around people that are in the game. Those are some things that come to mind. Well, I would think as good as you organize and as the way you organize, I think you know, you, you're going to start seeing the same points. They'll be different, but they'll be the same points. And I think that's being able to ultimately share that with other people is going to be an awesome thing. And I think you've got the opportunity to be in a room with people, hear stories, you, and you do a great job of putting them together, but to organize thoughts of different people and how they do it and what leadership looks like and what it is, it's, it could be really cool. Yeah. And also, I think it's powerful when you're able, you know, I don't know if you would have talked about going to Atlanta to see that business psychiatrist when you were 40. Now you're in your 50s. Yeah. And, you know, 
there's a different season of life, but I do think that honesty, you know, people hear this and things can resonate with people in a strong way and you never know who it's going to resonate with. And it takes a certain kind of person that's willing to to open up and, and go there. And and so I've also seen that too, how, you know, somebody to your point that looks like they have it all together or they have it figured out or they're known for this when other people that might not be as connected relationally or they or they might be internalizing things and right. then they hear that, that creates a spark inside of them and that's pretty special as well. Well, it's a it's an important thing and I, I would say it's something I've wanted to share for a long time. I mean, with my kids and others, they've heard it. Um, it it's not anything I got behind and was, you know, hid from because I'm so imperfect and everybody's so imperfect. But I do think if one person were to ever come up, and I've had people come up before after I've mentioned it, but one person ever comes up and says, you know, I was listening to this thing you did with Sam, and it was really cool, but the one thing I heard was this. I just want to tell you that, you know, I'm I'm doing that. Then you know what? So it's it's I don't know that it gets any better than that, right? At that time, you can drop drop the mic and walk <laughs> off and say, "My God," you know that's the point, right? Is is that you're allowing people to tell a story that not everybody knows. Many don't care, but there are some who do, and to be able to do it is an awesome talent you have, and it's a great opportunity. And you know, I'm just happy to be here. Well, thank you. means a lot. Yep. If you're okay answering, last question I have. Sure. Have you ever thought about what your dad might say if you got to ask him now about what your mom did, how things have unfolded now, thinking about the impact to the city, thinking about the impact to these employees, thinking about the impact to these communities outside of this city, I think, yeah, I mean, the cynical side of me would say, he'd probably say, why did you spend so much money on stuff that didn't make you money? That would be one of his <laughs> reactions. <laughs> but, you know, and not to get teary-eyed myself, but I think, you know, the people who knew him best, and that was here, have said, you know, he, I mean, their words are that he would, you would be shocked how proud he would be. So for me, that's a big deal, a big, big deal. Thank you. (laughs) He got me, by God. (laughs) Sam, thank you. I enjoyed it a whole lot. Hey, everybody. Since you've made it this far in the show, I wanted to share with you something that you may love. A few months ago, I was asked to interview a close friend's grandmother who's in her 90s. She lives outside of the United States, and this is a way to get to the heart of her and capture her life in a way that could stay with the family for generations to come. This interview was an absolute blast and it brought tremendous joy and value to this family. Since then, I started doing this for others. If you have someone you love or know of someone whose story and life you'd love to capture in an interview, go to mystorytold.org to learn more. My team and I would love to discuss this with you further. Finally, thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Driven By Podcast. If you enjoy the show, please leave a review. Please subscribe to the show and you can follow me on social, on Twitter and Instagram to join me for future episodes of the Driven By Podcast. Hope you have a great week and see you next time.